0: Hi hey, everybody. I um, want to go ahead and invite our children to children's church, just a situation in which they can hear the scriptures in a more adequate setting, um, more appropriate to younger ears, although I know we're all young at heart. It's not saying that. Um, so uh, let's let's begin our time in the word with, uh, with prayer. Um, Lord, we, we do confess that our hearts are restless until we find rest. And Lord, our only rest can be in you. As we work hard to make life work, as we work hard to appear to be righteous, trying to do more good deeds than not, uh, Lord, we realize that that is a a burden that we can't bear. And so we come to Christ and we say, we lay down our, our evil, we lay down our good works as well and say, Lord, be our justification. So help us to find our rest and our our comfort, our hope in you, as you carry the burden that we are unable to. And Father, I want to pray for our um, our friend church, uh, Life Spring back in Illinois in Spring Grove. Lord, I thank you for the work that they're doing there, for the good reports of uh, their ministry. Lord, I pray for Pastor Cabot this morning, as he's probably preached past tense by now. We pray that uh, his message would have been received well by the saints, that you would have filled it with your spirit, and that they would hear and trust in Christ more because of what they've heard and Lord we pray for them as um, as they're working on re-honing their vision statement their mission statement um, rehashing some of those things we pray for uh, a sense of unity amongst that body and uh, Lord I pray for their upcoming ministry festival that it would be filled with people who would be looking for opportunities to serve but Lord in their service I pray that they would see that um, Jesus is sufficient that they would find uh, that you are all in all, even in their service. And Father, we pray for their uh, their church plant, uh, Good News Church in Woodstock. And I, I pray that um, as you prepare Pastor Mitch for that role, that uh, he would be leading well, that he would be seeking holiness, that he would be pursuing uh, truth in the scriptures, and that, Lord, he would bring a light of Jesus Christ into part of Woodstock that um, that maybe people haven't heard before. So we ask your blessing on, on that ministry, on that outreach. And Lord, we ask your, your blessing and your, your, um, uh, your Holy Spirit to fill now our time in your word. May we hear and see and understand what it is that Jesus is telling us. And I pray that we would apply it to ourselves first and not think necessarily of what other people need to hear. And then, Lord, after hearing your word and, and taking it into ourselves, may we share it with others, with the hope and the expectation that Jesus is Lord of all. We ask this in his name, amen. So last week, you remember um, Jesus had cast a mute demon out of a man and the man began speaking and the crowd had three responses to it. There were those who were amazed. They saw this and it just blew their minds. There were some that looked at it and said, well, it's by the power of Satan. And then there were others who said, well, we need another sign. And last week we looked at Jesus' response and I said at that time he answered The spiritualists, the people who said, "Well, there's demons, and then there's a prince of demons, and you know we're going to fit you into this structure," and and Jesus answered them. He he showed them. He entered into their argument and said, "This is why that won't work." And and the eight dollar word of the day last week was presuppositional apologetics. You presuppose that their position is right, and then you show them why it's not. And that's what Jesus did with them. He answered them. And I said at the time, Jesus doesn't even answer the skeptics. He just kind of blows right past them. Well, this week, what we're going to see is Jesus does answer the skeptics, but it's not the answer they're expecting. He's not going to get in and argue with them. He's not going to offer them this, this presuppositional approach where he says, well, yeah, maybe you're right. Um, instead, what we're going to see this morning is it's more of a warning than anything else. He's really going to let them have it in a way that hopefully will, will wake them up. So, what we'll see as we work through this is, is verses 29 and 30 is there's going to be signs. And then. In verses 31 and 32, they're seers, people who have seen this. And finally, in the end, Jesus offers a solution to the skeptic. He he offers them a way out. He offers them some hope. So here's how Jesus answers skeptics. He says, when the crowd was increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. So Jesus is answering, and the crowd begins to increase. And so finally, he turns to the skeptics, and he says, you're evil. Skeptic, you're evil, because you're seeking a sign. Now, I would not say that we should go out, and and if you meet a skeptic, their first response should be, you're evil. Um, In case you haven't noticed, you're not Jesus. You don't know their heart, necessarily. Uh, there's skeptics who need to hear an alarming message like that and they won't receive it anyway. And then there are skeptics who actually honestly ask questions and they're, they're trying to understand. So uh, Jesus' response to them is calls them an evil generation. You cannot, he acknowledges you're seeking a sign and you're not getting one. You wanted a sign from heaven, you will not get a sign from heaven. You're asking more than you should be asking at this point. Instead, what you'll get is you'll get the sign of Jonah. So we'll unpack that a little bit. So what he says here is, he says they're, they're looking at, for more signs. What have they seen so far? What have we seen Jesus do so far in this gospel? He has repeatedly cast out demons. He just now cast out a mute demon, a man who could not speak, now speaks because of what Jesus had done. Before that, he ran into a widow whose son had died, or only son had died, and he raised him from the dead. He ran into Jairus, the, the leader of the synagogue, whose son had died or whose daughter had died and he raised her from the dead. He has repeatedly healed and cast out demons over and over again. So this is why Jesus looks at him and goes, you want a sign? You're not getting one. There's already been signs. Would you open your eyes and look? I've already done this. I'm not going to play this game with you. So that's his, his response. And then he says, there's no sign that's going to be given except for one. And that's the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was assigned to Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. That's his answer, and and what he's warning them to do is he's warning the skeptics: open your eyes and see. So, real quick, what is a skeptic? What do we mean when we say skeptic? Well, uh, Carl Sagan, um, he was the guy that did Cosmos in the 1970s. He used to repeat: extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That was his kind of mantra. Is if you're going to make an extraordinary claim that there's this invisible guy in the sky who does all this stuff, there should be extraordinary evidence for that. I'm not seeing extraordinary evidence for it, so I choose not to believe it. I'm skeptical of your claim. Um, Bertrand Russell, he was a, a famous mathematician. I think he was at Oxford, if I remember correctly, uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He, he did some wonderful math. He was a, he was a bitter skeptic. And so he was asked one time, what would you do if you die and you get to heaven and you meet God? And he says, why didn't you believe in me? And Bertrand Russell said, this is what, how he would answer God. He would say, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? That would be his response. You've heard of the magic team Penn and Teller? Penn Juliet, um, it, he's, he's a famous atheist, he's, he's done a lot of skeptical things. There's a, television program he did, I can't mention the name of in church, and it was a skeptical program, um, he, w- he was explaining one time in this uh, what I believe thing, why he believes, uh, he doesn't believe in God, and he says anyone with a love for truth outside of herself has to start with no belief in God and then look for evidence of God. So this is the skeptics approach is, I'm, I'm starting here and I'm just looking for evidence where is the evidence? Is there sufficient evidence to to believe? Uh, That's what it means to be a skeptic. And I don't think that's an unreasonable request, is to say, where is the evidence? The problem is, with the skeptic, there is no amount of evidence that will be sufficient. If they're not going to doubt their own doubt, if they're not going to be skeptical of their own skepticism, no amount of evidence will work. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with these skeptics who come to Jesus and go, well, that was nice. Show us a sign from heaven. And and Jesus knows their heart. And their response would be, well, you know, anybody could do that or come up with some other excuse. So the piling up of evidence doesn't really help. So Jesus' response to them is is jarring. It's shocking. It's alarming. You are evil. You're an evil generation, and you're not getting a sign except one. You'll get the sign of Jonah. And and the picture there is, is Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. He got barfed up on the sea, and he came and he preached. And he just half-heartedly began to preach in Nineveh, and the whole city turned and repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They even put sackcloth and ashes on their animals. They were so repentant. He said, that's the only only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, what it means is Jonah became a sign to Nineveh. He was in a fish. He got thrown up onto the beach. And then he came and he, he preached. Jesus is going to be like that. He's going to be like Jonah. And, and the way that Jesus means it is, I'm going to be in a grave for three days. The grave's not going to throw me up. I'm going to get up and walk out of it after three days. And I'm not even going to come and preach. I'm going to send my people to come and preach. And this is the sign that you'll be given. That's, that's what you get. What Jesus offers the skeptics is what the appropriate apologetic approach is, which is evidentialism. There's evidence. Here is the evidence of the resurrection. So some people you're gonna wanna do, do as you're talking with them, if they're really struggling to understand the faith, you might wanna engage in some presuppositional apologetics and say, well, let's take your worldview for a second. So you you, you believe you're a bag of chemicals. Okay, let's see where that leads. Boy, that leads to a really ugly place. You can't know anything. Other people, it may take an evidentialist apologetic where you would say, look, you can trust the scriptures. Look at these prophecies that were in the scripture and and look how they're exactly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's no way he could have faked this. He didn't plan his own birth to coincide exactly with what the scripture said. So you can offer evidence to people. And the point of apologetics is not to convert them on the spot. I don't think anybody is converted by apologetics like that, or very few people. What you're trying to do is remove the obstacles for them. And so Jesus is alarming these guys, and he's saying, you're evil to get their attention. Will they listen to him? And then once he's got their attention, he says, this is the evidence that there is going to be that I am who I said I am, and it's all you're going to get. So this is what you need to believe. So when we're engaging in apologetics with people, that's kind of, you have to be adaptive. There, there's a, we did an apologetics course in seminary, and you would be surprised, Now you probably wouldn't, how some people get hooked on one apologetic approach, and this is the only biblical approach to apologetics. It's like, really? We just saw Jesus do two, so which one of the two is the only one? I, I think the best way to approach apologetics is when somebody's legitimately asking a question, is answer them. Answer them however is appropriate for the question. Does it need a presuppositional where you come in and say, well, let's work through your thought process and see where that leads? Does it demand evidence? Hey, let's pull out this book. Here's some, here's some historical documents that show that people said this stuff about Jesus, that he really existed. Or does it take just a passionate plea with them? Please, you've got to hear and you've got to understand. You know, you, you've got to be adaptive, and that's what we just saw Jesus do with this crowd. Is he's adapting to the people in front of him. He's offering them hope in the, in the beginning of this. So this idea that he's going to be kind of like Jonah, he's going to be the sign of Jonah, there's some real cool parallels between what Jesus did and what Jonah did. Um, Nineveh he, he is the current generation. And if you look at the beginning of, of Jonah, in Jonah 1-2, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against their evil. So Jesus turns to the generation, and he says, you're evil. So you've got great evil as well. Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh and preach. That's what he's called to do. He's not called to go do miracles. He's not called to go um, build a temple or anything. He's called to go preach. And so that's what he eventually does, is he goes there and he preaches. Jesus comes, and he says, look, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again after three days. I'm going to go into heaven. And what you're going to get is my followers preaching. So just like Jonah came and preached, my followers are going to come and preach. And that's what you have. That's the sign that you're going to get. And like I already said, Jonah was in a fish for three days. Jesus was in a tomb for three days. The fish barfed him up. Jesus walked out of the tomb. And there's your signs. So this is is the, the original call. This is the signs that people are asking for. This is Jesus' response to that. Well, that's not the end of the story. They're seers. And, and really the theme of this is kind of open your eyes and see. We'll get to that at the very end. So here's, here's an example that Jesus uses of the seers, the people who have seen and believed before. In verse 31, he says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the edge of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you skeptics, look to the past and see. He begins by talking about the queen of the south. Um, This is the queen of Sheba that came to Solomon. Um, Sheba was probably where modern-day Ethiopia is. Um, I was just reading a, a couple, about five years ago, they found a giant gold mine in Yemen which is just across the strait from where Ethiopia was and they theorized because the time frame lines up this is probably where the queen of Sheba got all the gold that she brought to uh, Solomon. So what happened with the queen of Sheba? Um, David is made the king of Israel he eventually ascends to the throne He he reunites the kingdom it'll be split in two and he secures the borders and begins to build the kingdom of Israel up. He constructs his own house, a big, huge palace, and then he wants to build a temple, but God says, no, not you, your son. So after David dies, Solomon takes the throne. Solomon builds this gigantic temple, huge, beautiful temple, and he expands the kingdom even more, and gold and riches and priceless things start flowing into the kingdom. God is blessing Solomon and raising him up, but above that, When God came to Solomon, he said, what do you want since you're going to be the king of Israel? And Solomon said, look, all I need is I need wisdom to rule this people. And so God said, I will give you wisdom like nobody on earth has ever had. And that's what you see in 1 Kings is Solomon demonstrating this wisdom. Well, the word got out. There is a king in Israel who is so wise, he does amazing things. And the word gets out and it goes all the way down into Africa, down to Sheba. And the queen says, I got to see this. I want to know what this is all about. So she grabs a whole bunch of good stuff and a whole bunch of troops, and she heads up to go meet Solomon. And she hangs out with Solomon for a while, and he takes her around, and he shows her things, and he shares his wisdom with her, and she is just blown away in the end. She has never seen or heard anybody, anything like this. And her response in, um, in 1 Kings 10, is, is after she has some things to say, this is how she sums up her response to seeing Solomon. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So that's her response. She doesn't look and go, that was the coolest temple I've ever seen. She doesn't look and say, you know, those storehouses were just packed to the gills." She doesn't look at Solomon and say, I have never seen anybody dressed like you. That is just the, the best looking clothes in the world. She looks at Solomon and says, God has really blessed Israel. Look what God's done. He set you on the throne. That's incredible. She, she recognized when she looked at what all the evidence was, her response was, God loves Israel. That's what her response was. What Jesus says is, He looks to, to the Queen of Sheba and says, She came from the ends of the earth, she was a pagan. She was outside the community of Israel, and she came to Israel, and she saw, and what did she do? She attributed all this greatness to God. She recognized that Solomon wasn't about Solomon. He was about God. And so what he says is, the queen of the south will rise up with judgment, at the judgment, with this, the men of this generation, and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to, beho- to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. So here's what he's warning them. He's saying, you're the children of Abraham. You have been given the oracles of God. You have the prophets. You have the temple. You have the promise of God, and you don't believe the promise when it shows up. This pagan came from the ends of the world, and she showed up, and she believed. So at the judgment, when when the final judgment happens, they're going to stand up together And she's going to look at him and go, you fools. How could you not believe? All I had was Solomon. That's all I had. What have you got? Jesus Christ, God incarnate himself, is standing in front of you working great miracles. Solomon didn't work any miracles in my presence. You fools. How can you not see this and not believe it? Open your eyes. And then he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and do the same thing. So Jonah comes in. Jonah works no miracles. Let's be honest, he barely even preached. It says that Nineveh was a three day journey. He began to go in one day's journey. He began. He didn't even complete one day's journey. He just begins to go in one day's journey. And his message is 40 days and you're all toast. No repentance, no hope, no promise of forgiveness or anything. Just, you guys are, you, you're done, you're gone. That's not even the full message. That's not even the hope that they should be offered. And what is Nineveh's response? Let's appeal to God. Maybe he'll have mercy on us. Appoint sackcloth and ashes for everybody. Put it on the animals. Everybody fast. Maybe this God will have mercy on us. And so at the final judgment, when the the dead are raised and stand before the throne of God, The righteous and the unrighteous stand together. The men of Nineveh are going to look at that generation and go, you fools. How could you not see and believe this? We had Jonah, the most reluctant prophet in the Old Testament, who barely even preached to us, didn't extend hope, and we repented because we recognized that the power of God was at work. How can you, after hearing Jesus Christ, after seeing him cast out demons, raise people from the dead, walk amongst you, how can you not believe you fools. That's how he's going, they're going to condemn him at the final judgment. They're going to look at him and say, you had such opportunity. So Jesus is calling the, the generation's attention to this. He's saying, first of all, you're evil. Second of all, you're pretty dumb. Look at what these guys have to say. Pay attention to what they're telling you. Open your eyes. Look at the evidence. Get it. Nineveh got it. That's a pagan nation that was evil. The queen of Sheba got it. She was a pagan and she got it. You have the promise of Abraham, you have the scriptures of God, and you're not getting it. This is the peril, this is the danger of being the skeptic is you don't open your eyes. So the skeptic says, well, there's not enough evidence. What Jesus is telling him is, perhaps there's plenty of evidence. Perhaps there's so much evidence, you can't see the evidence. So let's, let's do a little presuppositional apologetics with the skeptics for a moment, shall we? Instead of, uh, um, of uh, evidentialists, we'll, we'll do a little presuppositional. Look at the universe around you, skeptic. Open your eyes and look at it. What you're telling me is this is a cosmic explosion, that there was nothing, and it blew up, and this is what we wound up with. Is that satisfying to your soul, to look out on the skies and to see these Brilliant stars, these huge galaxies, these nebula, and say, well, it's just part of an explosion. It just blew up one day, for no reason. Is that satisfying? Does that really ring true with you? And then to say, part of this cosmic explosion slowed down to the point where it began to form into atoms, which coalesced into a star and spun off other little pieces. And so suddenly we have a, a solar system. And on one of these chunks of rock, it just happened to have a lot of water just happened to. And it just happened to have this moon show up around it that just happened to be the same size, the right size to to block out the sun at certain points. It just just happened that way. And then in this whole big muddy pool of mess, life just happened to show up, just accidentally, for no good reason. And not only did this life show up and get complicated, it got really smart. And, And this life was able to look up through a sky that, oh, by the way, it just happens to be transparent. Didn't have to be. Could have been milky white just happened to be transparent and could look up and see and behold the stars. Didn't have to. If this thing was over a couple of feet more into the, well, maybe more than feet, into the uh, spiral arm of the galaxy, we would be so clouded with stars and with debris and all kinds of other stuff, we wouldn't see a thing. But this just happens to be. Does that sound satisfying to you? Perhaps what you're saying is there's tons of evidence. The scriptures say the heavens are declaring of the glory of God. What Romans 1 says is that God's invisible attributes are made manifest. We're able to see them through what was created. And we're put in this perfect position with eyeballs on the top of our head, and we're a species that happens to stand upright and can look up into the sky. And this is a showing God's invisible attributes. Maybe, Mr. Skeptic, there's plenty of evidence, and you, there's so much evidence you just count it as naturalism. Well it's just the way the universe is. It just happens to work that way. Maybe it's not. Maybe this is a ton of evidence, repeatedly presented to you over and over again to the point where you go, well it's not evidence. It's just science. Or it's just the way the universe works. That can't be a satisfying answer. That can't ring true. There are too many close coincidences to, to make it really satisfying. So listen to Nineveh. Listen to the Queen of Sheba. You fool, open your eyes. Drink in what's being preached through the stars, through the sun coming up every morning. Well, of course it comes up every morning, it has to. Why? Why on earth would the universe be understandable? If it's a giant explosion, what guarantee is there that you can look out through a telescope and make sense out of anything you see? Why? Well, the scripture's answer is because God is intelligible. God is communicative. He's rational. And so he created a universe to show himself his invisible attributes to you that is communicable and, at, and, and rational and reasonable. And so we can look out into the stars and go, well, I think that that star, which probably blew up 100 million years ago, is doing that this way because of these things. You can understand that because God made it that way. That's why. Maybe you have enough evidence and you just aren't happy with it. Maybe you're offered too much evidence. And so you just write it down as as natural occurrences. It's just just the way it works. You fool, open your eyes. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next, is he focuses on the eyes. And this this is what the skeptic has to do, is they have to open their eyes. So the last part, verses 33 through 36, Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. So that those who enters may see the light. That's almost verbatim from chapter 8, verse 16. That was where Jesus had just told the parable of the soils. The the word falls onto different types of soil and it has different results. After he explains that, then he says this. He, He uses almost the exact same thing. He picks it up and says it again. Most likely because Jesus was an itinerant preacher and he would have certain stories that he would tell in different places at different times. And so it's not surprising that it shows up here. Um, This is his standard thing that he talks about. You'll, You'll hear him say this. So he says, no one puts a light in the cellar or under a basket. You light a lamp for a purpose. What purpose? So that you can see, so that there's light so you can see. Now here he takes it in a slightly different direction. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful that the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark in it, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp, uh, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What on earth is he talking about? I always pictured this as the other way around as the, the eye is the lamp of the body and it looks out and it shines on the world and you can see. It's actually inward. It's saying when you open your eyes, the light comes in through your eyes and shines into your body. So what he's saying is you can look out at the creation, you can look at the world and you can see. And as that comes in, it's important that your eye is good. In other words, it's important that you see correctly. That's why I'm wearing glasses, because otherwise this would be a big blur. I want to see correctly. And that's what he's telling his audiences, you skeptics, you're already seeing, it's out there. Open your eyes, let the light come in, and receive it correctly, receive it rightly. When the light comes into your body, if your eye's good, if what you're seeing and interpreting is right, then you'll be full of light. What a tremendous promise. You want to be full of light? Everybody does. I can't imagine anybody sitting around going, I just love being miserable. It's a great feeling. Well, it's not. It's a horrible feeling, but I embrace it. That's what he's saying, is Jesus saying, when you see correctly, when you interpret the world around you right, it comes in and it fills your body with light. It fills you with hope. So here's what he's telling the skeptics. He's saying, doubt your doubt. Be skeptical of your skepticism. When When you look out at the world, make sure you interpret it correctly. So back to Penn Gillette, right? He said... He talked about if you if you want to know truth outside yourself, well, time out, buddy. Take a step back. Why is there truth inside you? What we'll guarantee do you have you that there's truth inside you? Uh, you start with the assumption that you you have truth inside you, and now you want to make sure, make, make a, um, uh, you want to assess the truth that's outside you. That's a pretty big assumption, isn't it? I think that's a pretty big guess that you actually have truth inside you. The picture here is, um, It's something called Plato's Cave. And uh, Plato's Cave, when Plato wrote it in the Republic, he meant it one specific way. Um, But since then, it's been used by philosophers a bunch of different ways, so I'm just going to do that too. (laughs) What Plato did was he said, imagine a situation where you have people chained up inside a cave. And they're facing away from the, the, the mouth of the cave, and all they can see is a wall in front of them. And the light comes from the outside, and it pours in, and it shines on that wall and they see people walking past the cave door and they can kind of make out the shapes and they see the shadows and that's all they can see. They they can't see reality. All they can see is the shadows of it. Now, what Plato did with that is he said, one of them breaks free and goes out and sees the real world and comes back in and explains it to him. And his application was, this is why we need philosopher kings, is because only the philosopher has set himself free and gone outside the cave. And so the philosopher needs to come back and tell you poor people chained up this is how life really is. Um, Guess who the philosopher was? (laughs) Guess who needed to be king? Um, The way philosophers have approached that though, it's a really helpful illustration, is it it asks the question, what is reality? How does reality work? Can we perceive reality? And so one way to apply it is, let's go back to Penn uh, Gillette and say, you assume that you have truth inside you. How do you know you have truth inside you? How do you know, as you look out at the world, that you can trust what you're seeing? You're chained in a cave. You're staring at at shadows on a wall. How do you know that those shadows are accurate? Well, you don't get to break free. Why would one person get to break free? What makes you so special? What makes you think that you're so smart you're able to get out and go look at the real world and go, oh, now I understand? It doesn't work that way. The Christian application of this would be the other way around. Ultimate reality walked into the cave and stood in front of you and said, this is the way it is. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, open your eyes. I have made the eye. I have crafted it so that you can actually accurately see what's outside. You can trust what you perceive. Why? Because ultimate reality has come to you and told you you can trust it. Because God himself comes and says, the maker of the eye has made it so that you can see and perceive. Jesus is telling us at this point, you can trust your senses. As you look out at the world and you recognize shapes and features, you get it. As you hear sounds and you feel textures, that's an accurate representation too. That's what he just told us. Open your eyes. Your eye is the light to the rest of your body. It lets you see and understand and interpret the world around you. Ultimate reality has come. So don't think that you've broken free and and gotten out and go figured it out. You can't, that's not the way it works. The illustration doesn't work that way. Ultimate reality has to step into your cave. And so you Mr. Skeptic, as you're doubting everything that you see and saying, well, I don't have enough evidence. Evidence has just walked into the cave and goes, here I am. Let me explain to you what reality looks like. You see this shadow? That's Jonah. That was the shadow of me coming. You see see this one? That's the queen of Sheba as she's looking at Solomon. Solomon's the shadow. Here, I'm the reality. I've come. I'm standing before you. You can accurately and, and truthfully understand who I am because I'm coming and I'm telling you about it. So will you believe? So when do we get out of the cave? At the resurrection. There's a promise here. Do you get that promise? At the resurrection... There is a time when the people of Jesus' generation that stood before him will stand up. And they will stand up to next to the men of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba. And they'll all be together at the same time. There is a resurrection coming. This is when the, the shadows on the wall become reality. When we get to see, we step out of the cave and we see what reality actually is. So that's what Jesus is saying, is, is while you have the shadows listen to reality explaining the shadows to you. They're pointing to something better. They're pointing to me. So you skeptics, you want signs. You want evidence. I'm all the evidence you're going to get until it's too late. This is the the urgency of this whole thing is, is the ultimate reality is walked in, and the skeptic goes, it's not enough. I want more. Give me a sign from heaven. Now, there are two options before the skeptic at this point. There are skeptics who are honest skeptics. I really believe that they are honest skeptics who are going, I, I need to understand why I can trust what the scriptures say. Why should I trust what you say? Why should I trust what Jesus says? And if you provide the evidence, if you show them the direction, they'll at least begin to acknowledge, yeah, that sounds reasonable. That sounds plausible. There are other skeptics who, no matter what you say to them, are going to, yeah, but. Jesus actually lived on the earth. We have outside of the Bible, although the Bible should be sufficient. It's an ancient historical document. There was evidence outside the Bible that Jesus existed. Yeah, but he didn't really say what he said. (laughs) Where do you get evidence for that? Why won't you believe what the, the people who knew him said he said? Why would you not believe that? Well, yeah, but so there's there's these two skeptics who are standing before you. Jesus alarms them. You are evil. You want a sign, you're not getting a sign. This is the only sign you're gonna get. There's a day of judgment coming. And so the Yabut yeah, skeptic, I like that. I think I'll patent that name. The Yabut yeah, skeptic is gonna doubt even up until that point. The honest skeptic, hopefully at this point, will have their ears opened. They'll begin to say, wait a minute, okay, I I think I see what you're saying. So this is true? And I I can know that because of that? So there's hope in this, but there's also a very dire warning. So my, my thesis throughout Luke has been, this is to make us better disciples. So how does this story make us better disciples? Any skeptics here? Raise your hand. I doubt you're going to raise your, No, oh, I'm sorry. Now I've got to raise my hand. Um, we're not the skeptics. We've put our faith and hope in Christ. So this is helping us to be better disciples by showing us how do you answer skeptics? How did our master answer skeptics? How did he answer um, spiritualists? How did he answer those who believe? The way he did it is he came and he presented truth. The truth is I am the way, the truth, and the light. The the truth is, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not perish. That's the truth. So what what Luke is asking us to do here, what he's picturing before us is he's saying, you have the words of life. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. His mentor, Paul, said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. You have these words. So when you meet the skeptic, the yah but skeptic, do you need to feel intimidated? When they start yammering on about quantum states and, and string theory, And do you need to feel intimidated by that? I, I can't answer you. I can't engage on a quantum mechanics level and answer your multiverse theory on every point. But I don't need to. Ultimate reality has stepped into the cave. Jesus Christ is actually real. He rose from the dead. How, how in a multiverse do you explain Jesus Christ rising from the dead? Yeah, but you're evil and you need to repent. There's a day coming when you'll be held account, accountable for your evil. So this is the, the path that, that Luke is showing us. Is This is how our master handled these doubts and these questions. And he's asking us, engage those questions in a similar way. Be ready with an answer, but don't feel like you have to answer every little quibble. You don't have to respond to every little thing somebody says, and you don't have to be intimidated when somebody is smarter than you. There's a lot of people smarter than me, and I'm intimidated when I'm trying to talk about something important, but when it comes to the faith, when it comes to Jesus Christ, I don't have to be intimidated. I can say this is the truth, and I know this is the truth. Will you hear and will you receive it? Your eye is the lamp of your body. If you will open your eye, you can be filled with light. Open your eye. The light will come in. Jesus is offering the truth. If you will but open your eye and listen for a second, light will stream in and fill you so that at the resurrection you won't be the one being called a fool. That this is, this is the, the path that Luke wants us to take here as we follow Jesus is there are times to be compassionate and kind, there's times to be sharp and direct, and we don't get a template, (laughs) we don't get a checklist that says, if people do this, do this. It it requires wisdom on your part. What does it take for the person you're addressing? Be sensitive to that, listen to them, and then respond. And understand that ultimately what we're talking about is not an intellectual engagement, a tit-for-tat, a one-for-one, You said this, but I say this, and you say this. Ultimately, what's happening is a spiritual endeavor. That's that whole idea of light coming into the body. Apologetics is the opening of the eyeball. It's me prying that eyelid open so that the light can get in. So let the light in. That's what we're called to do. We are the ones who, after Jesus' resurrection, we come into the city of Nineveh and say, repent. Judgment's coming. There's a way out of this. That's what Luke is calling us to do. This is the the tools he's giving us, the toolbox he's put before us. Based on how Jesus did it, he's saying this is how you engage the world with the message that you've been given. And that's where we're going to go. That's that's what is going to happen in Luke is he's going to continue to show us how to do these things. So what's the application for Trinity? itself. Um, I think for us, the application is we need to be ready with, to answer in these ways. We need to be ready not with a, a, a full-fledged understanding of the doctrine of evolution and where its weaknesses are. Um, you don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. I don't have the metal. I call it real estate. I don't have the capacity inside my head for all of that stuff. But we do have a message of hope. And so be ready for that. Want, pray, pray for people you bump into, pray for people you hear talking, just pray. Lord, open their eyes, let that light come streaming in, and then be ready for an answer. You never know when that person might turn to you and say, what is going on in my life? Why is this so messed up? You've got the answer. It's not because of random chance and the molecular alignment of the sun when it first formed. It's because there's a loving God who wants you to hear. So That's, I think, an application for us is we just have to be ready to share that and have confidence that that message will actually accomplish its purpose. That was, if I can just share a personal story, Um, I think I've shared it before. We were in Burma and preaching the gospel, and people said, how many people want to become Christians? And like three-quarters of the room raised their hand, and my response was, they just don't understand. Shame on me. We have to have faith in the gospel. They understood. They heard God opened eyes. So have confidence in the gospel. It actually is the power of God unto salvation, not quantum physics, not celestial mechanics, not biological evolution. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Let's put our hope in that. Let me, let us, uh, let's close in prayer. Lord, would you please empower us to answer Believers who may not understand all the ins and outs. Spiritualists who want to put Jesus Christ into their pantheon, into their, their array of gods and make him fit in someplace where, Lord Jesus, you are king of king and lord of lords. You don't fit into a pantheon. And Lord, would you give us the power, the faith, and the words to answer skeptics? Lord, I pray for all of us that we would have wisdom as our nation, as our, the Western culture becomes much more skeptical, much more secular and uh, materialistic. Uh, Lord, we're not afraid of those things because we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So would you give us, fill us with confidence in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the light of these things? And Lord, most importantly, we pray for everyone we come into contact. Lord, I want to pray specifically for this week, for everybody we bump into that, Lord, you would open their eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, let the good light shine in through an eye so that they might see and believe, that they might have hope in the future. And, Lord, would you please use us to that purpose? As you used reluctant, stammering, angry Jonah, Lord, would you use us? Lord, as you used imperfect, um, prideful, um, greedy Solomon, to bring the message of hope to the, the Queen of Sheba. Lord, would you use us in our greed and our imperfection and our, our selfishness? Lord, overcome those things and, and do that in us. And we repent of those, and we ask that you'd lead us out of them as well. But Lord, don't let those things be a hindrance to your gospel. Have mercy on us, on the people we work with, we bump into, the people we shop with and, and from. Lord, would you bring revival to this antelope valley? we ask in Christ's name for his glory amen